just want to um, get into a, a moment of just uh, being able to worship our great God in the same energy that you guys just delivered into this pump that was awesome. Um, felt like I just, I, I didn't go to the gym today, so I mean, I like to go to the gym, but this is like my workout right now. This is good. I'm sweating and I need my recovery formula later. Um, but um, this is, is just right. The way you guys are just diving into this is perfect. Since yesterday, you guys dove right in. And t- typically, uh, from in my, well, my experience is when I come to like retreats or any kind of conference, it's like always like, come on, guys, you guys can get it. Like sing a little bit or move a little bit. But you guys just dove right in and it's amazing. And what a, what a privilege and what a um, really just, it just makes my life easier because <laughs> I could just be here and have fun as well with y'all. Um, but so with that same energy, guys, I want to um, take some time to just pray a little bit. Um, we're going to worship in the same way, like I said, that same energy. But I want you to dive in to a place where you're one-on-one with God. I know you have your friends. We linked arms. We we're going in circles. Uh, the energy was great. You were all smiles, and it's awesome. But um, if perhaps you can link arms with our God in this moment, perhaps. Um, if you want to maybe link arms by just lifting your hand or maybe just opening your hands before you and just singing these words um, to just welcome the spirit, to welcome our God and, um, and have a moment with him. Amen. Can we do that? So um, I'll sing the chorus and thank you. We sing this for mass. So you may know this song. You're a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are, it's who you are, and I'm loved by you, it's who I am, it's who I am, it's who I am, it's who I am, you're a good, good father, it's who you are, sing to him, it's who you
as we notice that there are a lot of mothers and fathers here and it's beautiful but you guys can maybe see that as a reminder when you were a child and maybe when you see daddy papa or mama and you just welcome them with a big hug or perhaps you do that today and that's awesome um, but if in this moment we can call out to our father that never fails us our father that is always there Father, that's always going to comfort us. And if you want to maybe just extend your hands and just saying, God, we are here. Lord, I, I welcome you with my hug. Or, Lord, I open myself to you to come to me, Lord, to give me that warmth, to give me that hug. Or, Lord, just listen to me. Hear me. I want to speak to you. So if you want to just lift your hands at this moment with me, just sing these, this chorus. You're a good, good father. You're a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are, it's who you are, and I'm loved by you. It's who I am, it's who I am, it's who I am. You're a good, good father. It's who you are, it's who you are, it's who you are. It's who I am, it's who I am, it's who I am, you're a good, good father, it's who you are, it's who you are, it's who you
Lord, we come before you this morning as sons, as daughters. We thank you for the incredible gifts that you've given us, the gift of life, the gift of your love, the very fact that you call us as sons and as daughters. Lord, we offer up the rest of today to you. We ask that you'd bless it, that you would help it to be whatever it is that you need it to be, that you would reveal to us your unique plan, that you'd reveal to us the unique call that you have and the reason why each one of us is here. Take away anything that may be standing in, in our path so that we can completely give today to you. We ask this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Have a seat, I guess. Right? They got rid of your chairs. That's too bad. It's kind of sad. No chairs. No chairs. It's amazing how like something can you can hear something so many times or wind up in a situation so many times and think you know what's going to happen but be completely surprised. This morning I was having breakfast and I was talking with uh, Maya and she was telling me how she works with 7th and 8th grade students and I had all of these flashbacks. I've been a youth minister for over 10 years. I started youth ministry as a volunteer when I was 18, like right when I graduated from college. I was a volunteer youth minister, and I've been working in youth ministry ever since then. And so when she was talking about working with 7th and 8th graders, I had all of these flashbacks to the day that the priest at my parish was like, hey, uh, do you have any ideas for next year? And I was like, yeah, I really think we need to reach out to middle schoolers, 6th, 7th, 8th graders, and he was like, that's a really great idea. And I started to say, we should hire somebody to do that. And he was like, that's a great thing for you to do. It's like, Father, you misunderstand me. I don't want to work with middle schoolers. Because I remember myself in middle school, and I would be so annoyed by myself that I don't know that I could do it. And he's like, no, I think it's great for you. And so on one particular middle school ministry night, I had to sit in with a group of sixth graders and sixth graders are wonderful. If you've ever talked to like a sixth grader or somebody in like grade school, like when they pray, just how sincere and how honest and how you know, just really innocent they are. And so the night is on prayer and we're talking about, you know, when's the best time to pray right now? And what should we pray for? Anything. And so we're going around the circle and, you know, is there anything we need to pray for tonight? And this little girl, she had like big old glasses, just, you know, kind of awkward. She's like, yes, there's something I need to pray for. I'm like, okay, what do, you, what do you need to pray for? She goes, my dog, his name is Freckles, and he's very sick. Now, here's the thing. If you ever serve in ministry, you know, even just in life in general, we come across bits of knowledge, and we grow, and we want to pass that knowledge along, you know. You, you want to tell people where you've been hurt and broken and so they don't have to be hurt and broken. And so as she's talking about her dog, Freckles, I'm having a flashback to when I was in second grade and we got our first animals, a little cat named Stripes. Stripes was a striped cat because my family's very creative. 
I remember the day we found stripes. We were out walking in the countryside in Wisconsin, and we're walking along in there on the side of the road uh, by a farm field. There's a mama cat with all these little kittens, and my sister and I are like, ooh, kitties. Uh, my mom's like, don't touch them. They have diseases. And so we didn't. A farmer came out. He happened to be out in that area and was like, hey, how are you? We, my parents introduced themselves, and he said, yeah, one of our cats just gave birth to a litter of kittens. We're actually going to be giving them away when they kind of wean away from their mom. So if you're interested, just come on back in a couple of weeks, and you, know, you can have one of the cats. Like, there's no, you don't need to pay anything. I don't want the kittens here. You can just take them. And so the whole way home, my sister and I were like, Dad, can we get a cat? You need the kitty. Just, just, the kitty's are screaming. Can we get one? He's like, you don't know anything about cats. I know cats. You don't know cats. <laughs> we're like, how hard can it be? And he's looking at me. He's like, you're the oldest. You would need to take care. You need to promise to feed this cat every day to keep it alive. And I'm like, my sister's still alive. I live with her. <laughs> I feel fairly competent about this. Yeah, yeah, you're going to need to, you know what a litter box is? You're going to need to clean that. And I'm like, I don't know what that is. doesn't seem that hard or disgusting. It's hard and disgusting. <laughs> he gives all of these terms. He's like, you are responsible for the life of this animal, a sentient living being, and you're going to have to keep it alive. And I'm like, yeah, that's cool. I don't know what the big you know, issue is. This is not hard. A couple weeks later, we go back. We grab Stripes, the cat. And Stripes comes home to live with us. And really, taking care of a cat, I've learned, at least at that time, I didn't think it was that hard. You give it the little, you know, food every day, the, like, kibbles and bits or whatever. You scoop out the disgusting litter box. But the thing is, cat food, I don't know if you've ever smelled cat food, doesn't smell real great. And so, like, I'm just a kid, and I'm like, that kind of smells gross. So I tasted some. Ugh. Like, my cat can't possibly like this food. I bet Stripes would like the kind of food that I like. Pizza, burgers, french fries. Oh, and he did. He loved it. Like, we'd be sitting at the dinner table. I'd be sneaking him food. He was like a little dog, just eating all this food. And Stripes, as a result, got very, very fat. Because cats aren't built to eat that kind of food. Cats aren't designed to eat people food. And so he just kept getting, like, fatter and fatter. And, like, my dad couldn't figure it out. I was like, I don't get it. We got special food for him, like special diet cat food, whatever that is. And, again, like, my dad's like, I just don't get it. I can't figure out why he keeps getting fat. And I'm like, because this new food smells even worse than the last food. He needs even more of my stuff. And so what we wind up with, and, you know, to be quite honest, I think fat cats are pretty awesome. Because the thing is, if you've got a fat cat, like, <laughs> he, like, he didn't walk around, he waddled around. Like his stomach just kind of swayed. You could tell where he was in the house because there was like this like trail in the carpet, you know? Like that footprints in the sand story where Jesus is like, that one set of footprints is where I carried you. Like I see, I'm like that line, it, like a worm crawled across the floor, that's where stripes went. <laughs> that's how I know, marks in the carpet. And so we've got this cat, he just keeps getting bigger. But it was awesome, we love to just sit and do nothing and watch TV. Well, my dad came home one day, and I was like, we took the cat to the vet. And the cat has diabetes. The cat has feline diabetes. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know. Like, the cat just keeps getting sick. So eventually, we have to make the decision. And maybe you've had to make this decision where, like, 
my dad comes home one day, he's like, here's the, the bills are just really expensive, and this was a farm cat, and it's time for Stripes to go meet Jesus. And we're like, when's he coming back? Dad's like, never. <laughs> I've built his car in the backyard. It's in the ground there. There's a hole in the backyard. And I'm like, you know, so we're all distraught. And my dad's like, he's just too sick. We don't know what's wrong with him. So the night before we're going to go put him down, like my dad's, you know, like, well, it doesn't matter now. He's like giving him pepperonis off the pizza. He's like, he really likes this food. I'm like, I know. <laughs> and I'm feeling guilty because now I'm a little bit older and I realize I'm like fifth or sixth grade that I am probably the reason why Stripes is going to die. And so I'm laying in bed that night and I'm like kind of crying a little bit. And my dad comes and like, hey, hey, what's with the waterworks? Sounds like a, a whimpering kitten in here. But Stripes is laying in the hall, just breathing heavily, so I know it's not him. <laughs> He's just over there like, <sighs> I'm like, Dad, I have something to tell you. It's my, it's my fault. Like, it's my fault that Stripes is going to die. And my dad's like, no, what are you talking about? I'm like, I fed him like burgers and pizza and french fries because the food was disgusting. And now my dad's like in a tough spot because like in his mind, he's probably thinking, yeah, you might have had something to do with this. But he can't say that, so he's like, hey, 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 hey. No, Stripes, you know, he, he made decisions. And <laughs> he, uh, he's dug his grave and he's got a lion. And I'm like, he didn't dig his grave. You dug his grave this afternoon. You took me out there to help you with the dirt. <laughs> hey, it's, tomorrow, why don't we go after this whole thing? It'd be very sad. We'll just celebrate his life. I'll take it at McDonald's. I'm like, he loved McDonald's. <laughs> So we had to go put stripes down, uh, buried in the backyard. So all of this is coming into this conversation with this sixth grade girl who's now looking at me like, Freckles is sick. And I'm like, I have a really, I have an opportunity. I've walked this path. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to minister to you. We're going to get through this together. I don't know why I asked, but I'm like, what, uh, what kind of dog is Freckles? Freckles is a black lab. Black? Like all black? Yes, dad says it's very ironic. Not what I was picturing, but okay, that's fine. What's wrong? What's going on with freckles? And there are things you think are going to be said. There are situations you think they're going to wind up one way, and they don't. And so she looks at me, and she goes, freckles. Mom says freckles is sick. Because freckles is very constipated. <laughs> now I'm in a situation I can't handle. I'm not prepared for this. And I'm like, ah, ha, ha, ha. Any other prayer requests tonight? Timmy, do you have anything you'd like to add? No. Freckles needs prayers. He needs his own prayers. And he needs them now. Hmm. Would you like to pray for Freckles? No, I'm too sad. You pray for Freckles. So what do you say? Like, I don't, you, you, again, when you live an awkward life, you've got to learn to deal with awkward situations. And you've got to have a sense of humor. So I'm like, all right, I need to come up with a prayer for this uh, Stopped up dog. <laughs> so I'm like, all right, here we go. Lord, give me the words. And again, you have to have fun. You have to deal with awkward moments. I'm like, Lord, you tell us if we have faith the size of a mustard seed, that you'll move mountains. And we pray that you'd move the mountains inside freckles today. Lord, you gave the disciples the authority to bind and to loose. And we call upon that authority today. 
Timmy, the kid next to me, started to get healed. He was like, I'm like, not Timmy, Lord. Timmy is fine. Protect Timmy's intestines. We're talking about freckles. As far as I know, freckles was healed, which is a miracle that can be attributed to me. So on, someday if I'm up for canonization, y'all remember this moment. We can hear something so many times and think we know where it's going to go. We can think we know the end of it. Yesterday, we talked about the very first story in Genesis and God creating humanity and God's image and likeness as male and female. And today, we're going to go to the next chapter in Genesis. You see, John Paul II, in his audiences that we now call Theology of the Body, really honed in on this particular passage because Jesus cites it in that gospel we heard yesterday in Matthew 19. Jesus specifically says, in reference to marriage, in reference to men and women, and the union between the two, he points back to the beginning. And he points back to these two, and uh, really three chapters at the beginning of Genesis. Genesis 1 through 3. And so John Paul II said, this is important because it's not just, you know, like part of the Hebrew scriptures. It's Jesus himself referencing these scriptures and pointing them out as a place for instruction. And so it would be important for us to go back and look at it. Now, here's the thing. When we dive into this stuff, sometimes, especially when we get into Genesis 2, which is where we talk about Adam and Eve, we can start to, again, put the vacation Bible school image of Adam and Eve into our head, the image that we had as second and third graders. And we can make a very big mistake, which is thinking we know everything there is to know about the story, thinking we know how it ends. But nothing else in your life works with this level of understanding. Your math teacher for algebra, calculus, trig, whatever, doesn't say to you, all right, I know that you learned basic multiplication in second grade. That's all the understanding you need. That's it. That's everything you got to have in life. Now, for some of us, maybe that is eventually all that you need is like basic multiplication and, you know, addition and subtraction. But truthfully, that's not the whole picture. You know that there's so much more, even if you never move beyond it. And so if you want to get into a career, especially that involves math, you can't just stay there. If you want a relationship with the Lord, you can't stay at the second grade understanding you have of Genesis. You can't stay at the second grade understanding you had of Adam and Eve. You can't assume you know the rest of the story. So I need you to stick with me and not zone out. Because at the end of this session, you're going to have a completely under different understanding of what God says in that particular book of the Bible in that particular chapter. And so let's dive in, but I need you to leave the old cartoon Adam and Eve behind. We gotta let them go, because there's something greater that we're about to approach. In Genesis chapter two, we get a deepening look at, uh, at God and the creation of humanity. And so God creates a garden in Genesis two, and this garden's called Eden. And God puts somebody there to take care of it. God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Adam actually is a play on words for the Hebrew word for dirt. So if you're ever wondering, like, how did they wind up with the name Adam? It comes from ha-adam, which means dirt. So God creates a dirt person. But the dirt person isn't different than anything else in creation until God breathes life into him. And again, that word for breath can also be translated as spirit. So God puts his spirit, God's very life, into this creature. It's different than all the other animals because this creature has God's life within it. 
And it's this life that God places within the creature that will sustain it and set it apart. God also gives this creature dominion over the garden and the responsibility to take care of it. All the other creatures exist and they kind of go about their business, but this one creature has a responsibility for everything else. Last night we called this original solitude. It means that humanity exists uniquely before God. It's solitary in its role in relationship. All of us have a solitary relationship with God. Like God sees us collectively as a people, but also sees us individually, uniquely. God has given his very life into you. Without that life, you would not be. So all of us have this breath of life that's been given to us. And God creates this person in the garden, Adam, from the dirt. From the earth, he's brought up, and then by God, he's differentiated. Then God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And so the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what they would call him. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to cattle, the birds of the air, every beast of the field. But for the man, there was not found a helper fit for him. We talked about this last night. That God creates all of these other things. Notice that God forms them, but God doesn't breathe life into them. And man has dominion over them because he names them. And so man doesn't find anything compatible. He doesn't find a helper. He doesn't find a complement. Could also be translated. And not compliment in the sense of like, hey, you look good today. Nice hair. Good sweatshirt. I like your answers in small group. You're cool. Compliment spelled C-O-M-P-L-E-M-E-N-T. It means that this other thing, what he's searching for, fits like a puzzle piece would complement. Like peanut butter and jelly complement. Like anchovies on pizza complement. Maybe not that for me, though. <laughs> something that fits, something that works. And this first person doesn't have that. And so, so God needs to do something more here. And God creates something new from what exists. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. I need to, can I get two volunteers? I need a guy volunteer and a girl volunteer. Can I get a couple? You come on up. Come on up. I need you two just to kind of stand in front of everybody. But I want you to stand back to back. Yeah, go ahead and just stand back to back. There we go. Perfect, perfect. And so everybody goes, perfect. Here's some of the cool things that you don't get in vacation Bible school. God creates this first, this first being, this first human, Adam. But John Paul II, in his audiences, points out something that we don't get when we read the Bible. Now, quick Bible trivia. The Bible is written in a couple different languages, English not being one of them. What we're reading comes from an account that's written originally in Hebrew. That's how it first appeared. Now, the Hebrew language, if anybody studies, uh, English doesn't necessarily have this as much. Um, but in other languages, Spanish, Italian, German, Latin, Greek, Hebrew, there's masculine forms of words and feminine forms of words, right? We're familiar with this from those languages. We don't necessarily have that as much in English. English is a very complicated, cumbersome, at times stupid language. It doesn't make a lot of sense. It's not always logical. 
In Hebrew, there's these masculine pronouns. Adam, ha'adam, is one of them. And so we read through here, and it's translated as man, man, and we use a pronoun he at, at times um, to designate something that is almost slightly ambiguous and could be translated even just as humanity. And so humanity exists solitary before God. Adam exists, but God doesn't have a helper suited to him. So you're both looking different ways and seeing nothing. You see all of creation. We're not imagining these aren't people, but these are cattle and animals. And how about all of these people can be turtles? I don't know why. Just is what came to mind. And you don't see anything like you. There's not a helper fit for you. So you're solitary in your relationship to God, but, but something doesn't exist yet. And so God causes a sleep to fall upon Adam. And in Hebrew, the word is toper, which means more than just sleep. It could also be translated as annihilation. That God causes this first being to go into a place where God is going to radically transform and change the game. That God's going to almost even destroy what Adam knows about himself and make it into something new. And so God takes, it says, a rib, which signifies that this is completely God's creative action. That the man isn't doing anything. Adam's not doing anything to create. Adam has no part in the creation of this new being. It's completely God's action and initiative. Now, when ancient rabbis read through this passage, they kind of imagined this. As though you had a person and that God takes, you know, a buzzsaw and hacks him in two. Now go ahead and flip around and, and turn. So now we've had this thing, but now this one has become two. And Adam awakes and is looking at something that's different than everything else. I know, just embrace the awkwardness of having to, you know, look at each other. But, but now he sees something. He sees himself reflected in this new thing. And something else is new as well. I think language is very fun and God knows that language can communicate far more than just a word. It's only at this point in Scripture that the words male and female are used. The word male is never used to refer to Adam before the creation of Eve. Because maleness and femaleness, masculinity and femininity cannot exist apart from one another. So it's only at this point that Scripture uses the Hebrew word ish and isha, for male and female. They're created at the same time, just like that first account in Genesis 1. Male and female, God created them. This is important because sometimes the church get, comes under fire for, well, I mean, you know, you, you try to subjugate women. And unfortunately, sometimes in the name of a misunderstanding of this scripture passage, people of faith have done that and said, well, Adam was created first as the man. And so he has, you know, kind of dominion over the woman and all of creation and she's, you know, taken from him. So she's inferior. And then other people have argued the flip side and said, well, woman is the, you know, crown of creation because she's the last thing created. Words that John Paul II actually never used. They were coined by a Puritan scholar in about the 1800s in one of his Bible commentaries. What John Paul II does say is that this is the crown of creation the creation of male and female together, equal but different. Because now something exists. They look at one another and see themselves as the same, yet different. No longer completely whole, they need one another to complement each other. You guys can have a seat. 
And nothing else in the world can completely complement the male or the female. They require one another to form a complete picture now of who God is. Remember, if we're made in God's image and likeness as male and female, it means that women, you reflect something about God and your femininity that I as a man can never do. I can't. It's not, it will not be possible because God has created femininity to reflect a unique part of who God is. And that men, we've been created to reflect a unique aspect of who God is, to echo who God is to the world. And that apart from one another, if we start to destroy masculinity or if we start to destroy femininity, the other one cannot exist either. That if we say, well, men actually have to be less than masculine, we diminish femininity. And if we say femininity is just this, you know, that, that, that whole thing is not a thing. I mean, like, that women need to be less feminine, we destroy masculinity. If we destroy what the other offers, we destroy in ourselves. Now, nothing else can complement us, though, the way that a man and a woman complement each other. In fact, if you think about it, to try to pair us with something else, it could be kind of silly. On this episode of Human Nature, we'll examine the courtship attempts of man and woman as they search for their perfect match. Here we see man courting guitar. He is visually attracted to Guitar's curvy shape, vibrant colors, and promise of music. Guitar seems enraptured by man's conversation, frozen in intrigue. Man senses Guitar's attraction and coyly moves closer. He gently plucks Guitar's strings. Romantic dissonance. They are not a match. Here, woman is courting credit card. She is pleased that credit card is paying for the meal, but is anxious to uncover the more personal side of this money supply. Credit card doesn't reveal much, only that it enjoys an impressive spending limit of $25,000 and an interest rate of 12.5%. But interest rates don't conjure romantic feelings in woman. Desperate, credit card offers to buy the woman anything she desires. Somehow, woman feels like she'll be the one paying for such reckless spending. Now, man tries to court dog. They are already best friends, but man is exploring the possibility of something more. They discuss literature. Man is partial to Charles Dickens while Dog prefers Taro Gomez, everyone poops. Not getting discouraged, man boldly advances and gently brushes Dog's fur. Dog does not reciprocate, then poops in the chair. It looks like they're stuck in the friend zone. Next, woman tries to court Cat. They've had an up-and-down friendship for years, with Cat only seeming interested during times of need. Woman is highly attracted to Cat's adorable face, while Cat is attracted to the possibility of woman picking up the check. For several minutes, Cat indulges woman's poor taste in films, but finally leaves in disgust as woman describes Taylor Lautner as a better actor than Daniel Day-Lewis. Still searching for love, 
man courts mirror. Mirror feels familiar, comfortable. Man and mirror share common interest, like cranial fashion, but both struggle listening to the other. In a play for affection, man reaches for Mir's hand. Mir reaches back. But Mir feels cold and glassy to the touch. Man feels hopeless. Here, woman is courting chocolate. She is particularly attracted to chocolate's presentation and aroma. Chocolate feigns disinterest but is tantalized by the thought of being consumed. Woman finally gives in. She ingests the chocolate with a passionate vigor, rarely glimpsed in the wild. After a blissful minute, she is now alone and more depressed than when the evening started. Exhausting all other options, man and woman concede to court each other. They're a perfect match, like Adam and Eve, but wearing cotton, the fabric of our lives. So, men and women complement each other in a way that nothing else in creation could. And men and women reveal something important about who God is. This becomes critical as we start to look at how we are designed and the purpose behind design. Remember, if we're talking about a theology of our body, it means that if we look at our bodies, how they were made and how they work together, how God created a natural order, then it tells us something about who God is since God is our originator and our creator. At this point in Genesis, there are a couple of relationships that have been established in what we would say is just, in justice, or as St. John Paul II says, in original justice. Justice concerns right relationships. It's about making things equal and right. In a world that is just, people live in relationships that are marked with uh, care, with concern, with a certain degree of equality. And so this original justice actually concerns three different relationships that now take place. As man and woman exist, complementing one another, requiring one another in order to feel whole. In scripture it says that this is why a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife and the two become one flesh. That when a man and a woman called to marriage, this very first sacrament, that they form something unique about who God is because it's only within that moment that they're able to do something that only God has been up to this point able to do, which is create new human life. They're the only creature that's been given the charge to be fruitful and multiply and create more humans. So when man and woman come together, they reflect this one great creative aspect of who God is. At least they have the potential to. We call this the nuptial meaning of the body, meaning that when man looks at woman and when a woman looks at man, they realize that they go together and that they're made for something more than just themselves necessarily, that they're able to bring about and create life. And this relationship is marked by a degree of what is called self-gift. In original justice, they don't use one another, they don't abuse each other, they're not seeking to gain power or authority over one another. They give themselves wholly to the other and are received wholly by the other. 
This relationship exists in two other places, not just with the man and the woman, but with humanity and God. Humanity and God in this book of Genesis share a unique relationship marked by freedom, by love, where God is present wholly to humanity and humanity is present wholly to God. And then the third relationship concerns creation. Humanity exists in the garden in a relationship with creation that is mutually giving. Man cultivates and cares for creation, and creation yields fruit and food for humanity. The author of Genesis is saying something, that in the beginning, life was good. It wasn't marked by suffering or disease or death or use or abuse or violence. Natural disaster or destruction, it was marked with peace and it was just. And it can only be this way through four areas. These relationships were marked with something that we would know as freedom. We would say they were free. Humanity has a freedom and a free will to choose God. If you recall in Genesis, there's one rule isn't there in the garden. There's a tree that humanity can't eat from. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this tree is important because the author is saying humanity has a choice to choose against God. Their relationship with God is free. God has freely created humanity and, quite frankly, freely chooses to hold it in existence. If God were to tire of you, God could freely choose to destroy us, to annihilate us. God has the authority and autonomy to do that, but God freely chooses not to. God didn't create you and then wind up in some divine bind where it's like, man, now that I made that thing, I got to let it go. It's the rock that I myself cannot move. And you have a free choice whether or not you'd like to be in a relationship with God. Because this is one of the foundations of love, isn't it? Love isn't chaining Justin Bieber in your basement and being like, you will love me. That's not love. It's kidnapping. It's coercion. It's force. It's illegal. (laughs) But I mean, if you think about it, you can't force someone to love you because it wouldn't really be love. And so God puts this tree in the garden because it represents a free choice for humanity if they would like to choose not to love God back because God has freely chosen to love them first. The relationship with the man and the woman is free. They give themselves totally to one another. I, am free, I freely choose to be with you, and you freely choose to be with me. There's a freedom there that they choose daily to engage in. The second aspect of these relationships is that it's total. There's nothing held back. In Genesis 2 and 3, it says that God kind of moved among the garden. God's pictured um, as a person, and he walks among the people. God's totally present to Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve are totally present to God. Adam and Eve are totally present to one another. They give themselves completely. This is represented by the fact that Scripture indicates that they were naked but had no shame. They see all of the other person. They are totally present to one another. And there's not a feeling of shame or guilt or or kind of dirtiness about that. It's, I'm totally here to you, and you're totally here to me. Creation, totally present to humanity, gives all of itself, and humanity cares for creation. The relationships are marked as free, as total, and as fruitful. They bring forth life. God gives his life to humanity, and it bears fruit in that they are alive and they breathe. And humanity is present to God, not offering anything back to God. But they're in relationship with God, and that relationship bears a certain kind of fruit. The man and the woman have the ability to be fruitful as well. In fact, they're given the command to be fruitful and multiply, that they can create more life, that God creates and then says to the man and the woman, you can also create. 
you can be fruitful. And the fruit of your love and self-gift as its total will be more life, unique and unrepeatable, wholly loved and made by me. And you get to be a part of that. And then the final aspect of these relationships is that they're faithful. God says, I'll be faithful to you. I won't abandon you. I'm in it for the long haul. And what I ask is that you be faithful to me by obeying my commands, which is namely to not eat of this one tree. I have one rule. Be faithful to it. I've given you everything, and I will give you everything. Creation is faithful to humanity by yielding fruit, and humanity is faithful to creation by nurturing it and caring for it. And the man and the woman are faithful to one another. They don't have a desire to go and find something else or go hang out apart from them or cheat on them or hurt them. They're faithful. They're completely committed to each other. Humanity shares three relationships with God, with each other, and with creation that are in harmony. They work and make sense because they have four aspects. They're free, they're total, they're faithful, and they're fruitful. This is the way that God designed us to function. This is the way God designed us in the beginning to live out these four aspects, not just in our relationship with a significant other or a romantic relationship, but in all of our relationships in places where it's appropriate, marked by the stage of life that we're in. So Adam and Eve entered into a relationship, a marital relationship, and it was marked by a fruitfulness of one way, a totality of one way, a freedom of one way, and a faithfulness of another way. But think about your friends. The relationships you have with your friends are in harmony when you are able to offer the part of yourself to a friend as a certain kind of gift in a total way. You don't hold, a certain, you don't hold secrets back from your friends that would not necessarily be appropriate or gossip about them. But there's also a boundary there, right? It's not a certain kind of total. It's a very specific kind of total appropriate to friendship. That there's a faithfulness. I'm going to be your friend and I'm not going to desert you, you know, on, on your bad days. But it's a faithfulness that also recognizes that maybe there'll be times in our life where we don't become friends anymore because we move apart and, and that's okay. There's a boundary. There's a fruitfulness in that we bring joy with one another, but it's a specific kind of fruitfulness. And those relationships are free. We don't coerce people to be our friends. And so our relationships in a regard are marked with this when they're in harmony. But when we coerce people to be our friends, when we coerce people to love us or care about us, then there's a break there. If the relationships we have with a certain group of friends actually bear bad fruit, we do bad things when we're with them, then they're not holy. If we're just giving people a, a part of our friendship in order to string them along or because we feel sorry for them and we're saying, I don't want to be like a total friend to you, I want to be a partial friend to you, there's a break there as well. And so relationships are marked with these things, but these three big ones, the relationship, a romantic relationship, a relationship with God, and the relationship with the world are marked with these four things. And they become fairly important. Because if they were to break, if they were to shatter, if our design and purpose were to be distorted, well, something would enter the world. My cat wasn't designed to eat human food. I don't know that any of us were necessarily designed to consume Big Macs or any burger that costs less than a dollar. It wasn't part of how that creature was created. And when it went against its design by eating something that was not good for it, it got sick and it died. God says the same thing to humanity. I've designed you with a purpose and with an intent. And if you follow my purpose and plan, because I'm the creator and I know it, you will live a life that is free and is alive and is whole. But to deviate from that plan is to experience death. 
Throughout this weekend, we'll use a word uh, at a couple different sessions, and the word is chastity. And maybe you've heard it before. And chastity does not mean abstinence. Abstinence for certain states of life is a big part of chastity. But chastity simply means, they'll give you the simple definition. When you hear the word chastity, if a speaker says it from stage, at a conference, at a men's and women's session, or at any point through this weekend, chastity means living a life that is fully integrated, especially in regards to our sexuality, our masculinity, our femininity, but living an integrated life, kind of what God had intended for us in Eden. A life that's chaste, looks at relationships, and has appropriate boundaries on them, lives lives, lives relationships that are free, total, faithful, and fruitful with respect to the kind of relationship it is. So like the relationship I have with my mom and my dad, when it's at its best, shows marks of those four things, but in a very specific way appropriate to that relationship. My relationship as it's free, total, faithful, and fruitful with my wife looks different. So chastity is integrating those things within ourselves. It's being whole. It's following along with our purpose and our design so that we can be free and fully alive, live in right relationship with one another and with God. This is how we began and this is how we were designed. You are not male or female by an accident. You are not created in God's image and likeness by an accident. And God has a plan and a purpose for you and that's not by an accident either. But we also know that the story doesn't stay that way. For now, though, I want us to take some time to reflect on those four things, free, total, faithful, fruitful, to think about those three relationships with creation, with one another, and with the world, and ask ourselves, how do I individually reflect who God is? And if I'm feeling a dissonance in my life right now, like maybe I'm a little off from that plan, what does that mean, and where is that coming from? In a second, we're going to go and have an opportunity to process those things. But for now, I'd like to take a minute just to pray and to offer up anything you've taken from this, whatever notes, uh, to God that he would continue to work through that. If there's questions, if there's struggles, good. Lean into those questions and those struggles. There's still a whole day to kind of confront them and to challenge them and to pick them apart. Don't let that be the reason you disengage. Make it the reason you engage even deeper. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord God, you've stamped your very image and likeness upon each one of us. We are created for a purpose. We are designed with an intent. We are made to complement one another. And in doing so, reveal something about who you are. Help us to dive more deeply into this reality. Help us to examine the places in our life where we're, where we're living in relationships that are right relationships, are just relationships, are holy and healthy relationships. And Help us to model all of our relationships off of those things, but Lord, show us the places where maybe we have not done that. And help guide us into paths and understandings that will bring correction and healing to those places and allow us to really embrace what it means to be fully alive, to live in your love, to live in love with one another, and to live in harmony in the world in which we exist. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. All right, let's give it up for Joel.